Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. The Romans and their Greek friends blamed the Second Punic War on Hannibal's hatred of Rome. The Barsids had been planning a war of revenge ever since the loss of Sardinia in 237 BCE. Hamilcar and Hasdrubal had conquered Spain to acquire a base as well as the military resources to attack Rome. Hannibal then exploited the Saguntum crisis to bring the war about. Polybius even identified the precise moment when Hannibal's hatred began. In the third book of his histories, he records this story, supposedly told by Hannibal himself to Antiochus III, ruler of the Seleucid kingdom of Syria. When my father was about to go on his Iberian expedition, I was nine years old, and as he was offering the sacrifice to Zeus, I stood near the altar. The sacrifice successfully performed, my father poured the libation and went through the usual ritual. He then bade all the other worshippers stand a little back, and calling me to him, asked me affectionately whether I wished to go with him on his expedition. Upon my eagerly assenting, and begging with boyish enthusiasm to be allowed to go, he took me by the right hand, and led me up to the altar, and bade me lay my hand upon the victim, and swear that I would never be friends with Rome. So long then, Antiochus, as your policy is one of hostility to Rome, you may feel quite secure of having in me a most thorough-going supporter. But if you ever make terms or friendship with her, then you need not wait for any slander to make you distrust me and be on your guard against me, for there is nothing in my power that I would not do against her. The story of Hannibal's oath is famous in its own right. However, the evidence from the events of the outbreak of the Second Punic War argues strongly against the Roman accusation of a long-term Barsid plan for a war of revenge. The Saguntum Crisis was an escalating cycle of action and reaction resembling the crisis at the outbreak of the First Punic War. But the most compelling piece of evidence against the Barsid revenge thesis is the weakness of the Carthaginian navy. As gifted military leaders, Hamilcar, Hasdrubal, and Hannibal would have clearly understood that a strong fleet was a necessity for any offensive war against Rome. Yet, in the 19 years between their arrival in Spain and the outbreak of the Second Punic War, a period during which they enjoyed absolute military and political power, the three Barsid warlords did nothing to reverse the rapid decay of Carthaginian naval power. When Saguntum fell in autumn 219, the Carthaginian navy amounted to 32 kinkerems in Spain and another 55 in Carthage. This paltry strength was no match for a Roman navy of 220 kinkerems. What the evidence much more persuasively points to is a Barsid defensive policy of strengthening Carthage so that it could stand up to Roman aggression and bullying. This Barsid policy had produced spectacular results. Even today, the Second Punic War is regarded as pitting a Roman Goliath against a Carthaginian David. In this view, Rome's reserves of military manpower had grown so immense and so overwhelming that Carthage could never hope to match them. Only the military genius of Hannibal and the skill of his invincible army of veterans allowed the Carthaginians to fight so effectively for so long. The reality was starkly different. 
and was accurately captured by Livy, who stresses that no other states or nations that have come into conflict had greater resources than these two peoples, nor had the combatants themselves ever been stronger or more powerful. As Polybius famously recorded, the Roman censors in 225 had tallied up the numbers of Roman and Italian allied men able to bear arms. They had come up with the awesome figure of 700,000 infantry and 70,000 cavalry. In 218, for the new war against Carthage, the Roman Senate dipped into this deep manpower pool to mobilize 27,000 Roman citizens and six legions and 44,000 allies, for a total of 71,000 troops. As for the Carthaginians, Hannibal threw himself into energetic preparations for war against Rome as soon as Saguntum fell. He first made sure that Spain and Africa were both adequately defended. Hannibal sent 20,000 Spanish warriors to Carthage and brought 12,600 Libyans and Numidians to Spain. These troops would be augmented by local levies. Hannibal reserved 90,000 men and 37 elephants for the army he would personally command. These numbers are taken from a bronze tablet that Hannibal left at the Temple to Hera at Cape Lacinium near Croton in southern Italy. Although the tablet has been lost, it was seen and copied by Polybius. The numbers show that Carthage's initial mobilization in the Second Punic War was even greater than Rome's, 122,600 Carthaginians to 71,000 Romans. The Barsids had succeeded in rebuilding Carthage's military strength to at least the equal of Rome's. Throughout most of the war, Carthage was able to continue raising large armies. It also rebuilt its fleet. Carthage's military power was only eclipsed by Rome at the very end. The Second Punic War, then, was a conflict of two Goliaths. Both Goliaths were planning short wars that would be won by direct attacks on the enemy's homeland. For the 218 campaigning year, the Roman Senate ordered Consul Publius Cornelius Scipio to conquer Carthaginian Spain, with his consular army of two legions and allies. Consul Tiberius Sempronius Longus was to go to Sicily with his two-legion consular army to prepare for an invasion of Africa. The remaining two legions, under the command of a praetor, were to hold down Cisalpine Gaul, where the Gallic tribes were on the verge of rebellion. The Roman aim for the war was to defeat the Carthaginians so thoroughly they would never again be able to pose a threat. Achieving the same would mean stripping Carthage of its empire in Spain, driving the Barsids from power, and not least, amassing as much Punic booty as possible. Hannibal's strategy for the Second Punic War was based on two principles. First, the Carthaginian strategy during the First Punic War, which had been focused on the defense of Sicily, had been far too cautious. Second, the real source of Rome's power was its domination of Italy. Hannibal therefore concluded that he had to invade Italy with his army. By inflicting crushing defeats on the Romans on their home territory, Hannibal could compel the Republic to sue for peace, as well as convince the Italian allies to abandon their allegiance to Rome and join Carthage. With a peace treaty, Hannibal intended to restore Carthage's empire, while simultaneously reducing Rome to a second-rank power. Carthage would regain Sicily and Sardinia, the Italian states and peoples would be permanently attached to Carthage. But how was Hannibal to reach Italy? The fastest and safest routes by sea were closed to him. The Roman navy was now master of the western Mediterranean. Although the Barsids were belatedly pouring resources into the Carthaginian fleet, 
Carthage would not be able to challenge Rome for naval supremacy for some time, if ever. Hannibal therefore had no choice but to proceed by land. From this realization flowed one of Hannibal's most famous feats of arms, his march from Spain, across southern Gaul, then over the Alps to Italy. Hannibal's preparations took time. At last, he set out from New Carthage in May or June 218 with his army of 90,000 men and 37 war elephants. His plan was bold, imaginative, and dangerous. The plan required the army to march vast distances and overcome considerable geographical obstacles. The Carthaginians had to find supplies of food, water, and fodder in little-known country. Above all, Hannibal's army would frequently have to fight its way through hostile peoples. Fortunately, Hannibal and his army did not have to face the Romans on their great march. Hannibal had correctly anticipated that the Roman high command would never expect the Carthaginians to make such an aggressive move. The Senate and consuls instead calculated that their enemies would simply passively defend Spain and Africa. They therefore allowed themselves to be taken completely by surprise. The Romans had their first hint of Hannibal's march only in late October. After numerous delays, consul Publius Cornelius Scipio and his consular army were finally en route to Spain. Along the way, Cornelius Scipio put in at the mouth of the Rhone River. The Roman cavalry then encountered some Carthaginian cavalry from Hannibal's army. Hannibal immediately turned away from the Roman consul and disappeared into the wilderness between the Rhone and the foothills of the Italian Alps. An alarmed Publius Cornelius Scipio then ordered his army to proceed to Spain under the command of his brother Gnaeus, an ex-consul. Publius himself doubled back to take charge of the two legions in Casalpine Gaul and wait for Hannibal. The decision to proceed to Spain turned out to be one of the best that the Romans made during the entire war. By continuing with the invasion of Spain, the Scipio brothers ensured that the Barsid stronghold became an active fighting front. Hasdrubal Barca, Hannibal's brother, who had been left in command in Spain, had his hands full fighting the Romans. He was unable to send reinforcements to his older brother. Even more importantly, he was unable to march himself to join Hannibal in Italy until it was much too late. Hannibal and his army reached the Alps in late October 218. Hannibal's crossing of the Alps is the most famous and most myth-shrouded event of the Great March possibly even of the Carthaginian warlord's entire career. It has been a frequent subject of art. My favorite representation of it is J.M.W. Turner's painting, Snowstorm, Hannibal and his army crossing the Alps, which was first exhibited in 1812 and now hangs in London's Tate Gallery. In Turner's distinctive, powerful style, a huge snowstorm, a turbulent swirl of black, gray, and blue, blots out the sun and dominates most of the canvas. Beneath it, tiny figures cower, Hannibal's African and Spanish soldiers, struggling in the harsh alien conditions. Turner's magnificent painting reproduces the myth of Hannibal's crossing of the Alps, the Carthaginian army stumbling through unceasing snow and ice, constantly battling against fierce mountain tribes. The reality was that Hannibal's army made its 15-day journey in the relatively mild conditions of early fall. The Carthaginians only encountered significant snowdrifts at the final pass before its descent. Furthermore, because of careful diplomacy by Hannibal, most of the Alpine tribes were friendly. Instead of attacking, they furnished the Carthaginians with plentiful supplies. 
Hannibal's troops only had four days or so of serious fighting against inveterately hostile tribesmen. Hannibal arrived in the Po River Valley in northern Italy in early November, around the time of the setting of the Pleiades, Polybius reports. His great march had taken him five and a half months to complete, even if the final stage in the Alps had not been as bad as it is usually made out to be. The march overall had been very hard and very costly. Along the way, Hannibal had detached large forces in order to garrison places and regions he wished to hold, such as northern Spain, which was added to the Barsid dominions. But far worse, his army had suffered heavy losses from combat, illness, and above all desertion. When Hannibal took account of his army immediately following the descent from the Alps, he found he had just 8,000 Spanish and 12,000 Libyan infantry and 6,000 cavalry. These figures represent just 29% of the 90,000 men that had set out from New Carthage. The 26,000-strong remnant did represent the best of Hannibal's troops, the bravest, toughest, most skilled, and most committed to his cause. Another consolation was that all 37 war elephants had amazingly survived. Hannibal had also arrived in Cisalpine Gaul at an extremely propitious moment. The Romans had only subdued this region, which stretched roughly from the Arno River to the Alps, during the recent war of 225 to 222. The two most powerful tribes of Gauls, the Insubres and the Boii, had risen in a new rebellion. The Gauls now looked to Hannibal as a powerful ally, possibly even a liberator. Friendly tribesmen brought supplies to the Carthaginian camps. More importantly, Gallic warriors began joining Hannibal's army in great numbers. The Gauls were what the Romans called the Celts. Greeks and Romans tended to look down on the Celts as little more than savages. In fact, Celtic civilization was ancient, rich, and sophisticated. In particular, Celtic metalwork was highly advanced. The Romans had adopted their helmets and their chainmail body armor from the Gauls. The Gauls had also likely given the Romans the four-horned saddle. For Hannibal, the Gauls offered a priceless opportunity to replenish his badly depleted ranks with fresh, fearsome fighting men. Roman sources depict Gallic warriors as something akin to ancient Hell's Angels, they fought naked, covered only by outlandish tattoos and garish gold jewelry, their long hair limed into spikes, their faces sporting outlandish beards and mustaches, brandishing gigantic swords in their hands, and screaming wild battle cries like roaring beasts. Warriors in the heroic mold, the Gauls' initial onset was always ferocious and difficult to resist. However, the Gauls lacked the discipline and cohesion to have much staying power. Unless the warriors won quickly, they became easily discouraged and prone to panic. Roman legionaries quickly learned that if they could survive the initial Gallic charge, they would gain the upper hand and begin to inflict heavy casualties on their foes. The warriors now streaming to Hannibal's banners consisted of both cavalry and infantry. Gallic cavalry were close-order, close-combat fighters. Gallic horsemen tended to be drawn from the tribal elite of chiefs and their personal followers. They were therefore the most well-equipped warriors. All had helmets and many had chainmail armor. Their other arms were an oval or rectangular shield, a spear or javelins, and the long Gallic sword. This last weapon had a blade of 90 centimeters or 3 feet or even more in length and frequently lacked a point. 
warriors used their swords to deliver slashes and cuts that depended more on brute strength than finesse. Gallic infantry also fought in close order and hand-to-hand. Virtually all Gallic infantry were unarmored, relying entirely on their large shields for protection. All infantry warriors had spears and javelins. Those who could afford it also had the Gallic sword. The Gallic warriors who joined Hannibal's army came under the command of his cadre of veteran Carthaginian officers. These officers would effect a transformation of the Gallic warriors from heroic, unruly tribal fighters into disciplined troops practically indistinguishable from the other contingents of the army. This change would be carried out with surprising rapidity. After all, the Carthaginians were used to Gallic mercenaries. Gauls had been a major part of Carthaginian armies during the First Punic War and even before. More importantly, Hannibal's officers had considerable experience at integrating diverse troops into the command and combat structures of their army. By the Battle of Cannae, the transformation of the Gauls was largely complete. With his army refreshed and replenished, Hannibal began hunting for the Romans. Back in Rome, The Senate had been shocked by Hannibal's appearance in Cisalpine Gaul and had recalled Consul Tiberius Sempronius Longus and his consular army of two legions plus allies from Sicily. Hannibal's invasion of Italy already had one important effect. It spared Carthage's Libyan heartlands from a Roman invasion. Sempronius Longus would take some time to arrive in northern Italy. In the meantime, Consul Publius Cornelius Scipio, with the two legions already in Cisalpine Gaul, crossed the Po River to challenge Hannibal. In early December, at the confluence of the Ticinus and Po Rivers, the Carthaginian and Roman cavalry forces, led by their respective generals, clashed in the first pitch battle of the Second Punic War. Hannibal held the enemy squadrons in front with his Spanish and Gallic horse while sending his swift Numidians racing around the wings then charging into the Roman rear. Attacked from all sides, the Romans broke. Publius Cornelius Scipio himself was badly wounded and, according to Polybius, was only rescued by the bravery of his teenage son, also named Publius. With his cavalry badly mauled, the elder Scipio had to retreat back across the Po to await the arrival of the other Roman consular army. By late December 218, The Carthaginians and Romans were confronting each other from opposite banks of the Trebia River. Sempronius Longus had brought in his consular army, so the Romans now had four legions and their allied units, a total of 38,000 foot and 4,000 horse. Polybius reports that Sempronius Longus was overconfident and eager for battle, while Cornelius Scipio advised delay. However, this detail, which helps to excuse Cornelius Scipio from responsibility for the coming disaster, is likely an example of Polybius's notorious bias in favor of the Cornelii dynasty. Following an influx of Gallic warriors, Hannibal's army now had a strength of 28,000 foot and 10,000 horse. Around the winter solstice, December 21st or 22nd, Hannibal decided to bait the Romans into a battle on his terms. The Carthaginian general had carefully studied the ground on his side of the Trebia. On an otherwise flat, featureless plain, he had identified a stream bed in which he could conceal an ambush force. He ordered his younger brother Mago, whom Polybius describes as a youth eager to prove himself in battle, to pick 1,000 Numidian light-armed infantry and 1,000 Numidian cavalry and hide them in the stream bed. The next morning was bitingly cold, and the air was filled with driving sleet. 
Hannibal instructed the rest of his Numidians to cross the Trebia and threatened to attack the Roman camp. He then ordered the rest of his army to have breakfast, rub themselves with olive oil to protect themselves against the cold, then take up their arms and fall into battle formation. Sempronius Longus took the bait. When the Numidians approached, he woke up his army and ordered it into battle formation. To insistent calls from the Cornu trumpets and bellowed commands from the centurions and tribunes, the Roman legionaries and Italian allies tumbled out of their tents. They staggered out of the camp and to the banks of the Trebia. Then they plunged into the river and began to cross. The icy, chest-deep water would have driven the last traces of slumber out of the Romans and Italians. Once on the other side of the Trebia, at Sempronius Longus's command, the Roman army shook out into its customary battle formation. Citizen legions in the center, flanked by Italian allied infantry, Roman cavalry on the right wing, and Italian allied cavalry on the left. The Romans and Italians were tired, freezing, and soaked to the skin. They were also famished, having not had the chance to eat breakfast. Hannibal had drawn up his army with his Libyan, Spanish, and Gallic infantry in a single line in the center. He divided up his cavalry and his 37 war elephants between his wings. He initiated the battle with his 8,000 skirmishers. The Carthaginian light-armed troops got much the better of the Velites. According to Polybius, the Velites' javelins were soaked and so could not fly far. Still worse, the Romans had no answer to the sling stones of the Balearic islanders. Sempronius Longus withdrew his defeated Velites and ordered his legions to attack. With a great shout and a clashing of weapons on shields, the legionaries advanced. Hannibal drew his light-armed troops back and sent them to the wings to support his horse. The heavy infantry of the Roman and Carthaginian centers collided. What ensued was a long, grinding fight in which neither side could gain an immediate advantage. Meanwhile, the wings came into contact. The Carthaginian cavalry, greatly superior in numbers and quality and also supported by war elephants, made quick work of their enemies. The Roman and Italian cavalry were smashed to pieces. The remnants ran. The Carthaginian light-armed troops and Numidian cavalry then turned inwards and fell upon the Allied infantry flanking the legionaries. At this moment, Hannibal unleashed Mago's ambush force. His 1,000 Numidian light-armed and 1,000 Numidian cavalry emerged from their concealing stream bed and attacked the Roman army's rear. The Romans and Italians quickly collapsed. Yet, in a testament to Roman discipline, determination, and raw combat power, the 10,000 legionaries at the very center of the army managed to punch completely through Hannibal's infantry line. These troops managed to escape from the battlefield, with consuls Sempronius Longus and Cornelius Scipio. The rest of the Roman army was killed, wounded, captured, or scattered. The Battle of the Trebia was the first of Hannibal's famous victories against the Romans. It showed all of the hallmarks of his generalship, the care for his men, the inspired eye for ground, the meticulous preparations, the careful tactical management, and above all, the determination to not just defeat the enemy army, but utterly destroy it. His own losses were comparatively few, and were mainly borne by his new Gallic allies. But a severe winter storm blew up after the battle. The piercing cold and driving snow killed all but one of Hannibal's elephants. Also after the Trebia, Hannibal unveiled a key aspect of his grand strategy. He freed all his Italian prisoners without ransom, and sent them home with a message, 
he had entered Italy in order to free the Italians from Roman domination, and to restore to the Italians the lands taken from them by the Romans. In this way, he hoped to begin undermining the Roman alliance system, but he also knew he needed to win more victories in the heart of Italy. For the Romans, the defeat at the Battle of the Trebia was a shock. However, they regrouped quickly. For the year 217, the Senate mobilized fresh legions for southern Italy, Sicily, and Sardinia in order to guard against a Carthaginian amphibious attack. The Scipio brothers' campaign in Spain against Hannibal's brother Hasdrubal continued. The defeat of Hannibal in Italy was the Republic's chief military priority. From the beginning of the campaigning season, both consular armies would be sent against him. The Senate instructed the consuls Gaius Flaminius and Gnaeus Servilius Geminus to coordinate carefully so they could crush Hannibal together. Yet the consuls had a serious problem. Which way would Hannibal go? From Cisalpine Gaul, the Carthaginian general was free to move on one side or the other of the Apennines, the mountain chain that ran down the Italian peninsula like a spine. The consuls decided to cover both possibilities. Flaminius positioned himself in the west, at Ariatum in Etruria, while Servilius stood in the east, at Ariminium, near the coast of the Adriatic Sea. The consuls agreed that whichever one of them Hannibal moved against would immediately send word to the other, who would then make directly and with all haste for the Carthaginians. Flaminius and Servilius thus hoped to trap Hannibal between their two armies. In early May, Hannibal mustered his army, now 50,000 strong. One of the hallmarks of his generalship was rapid, unexpected movements. He marched into Etruria, but by an unorthodox route. He crossed the Apennines and then drove his army through the marshes along the upper reaches of the Arno River. The crossing of the marshes was a nightmarish affair. The army slogged through mud and waist-high water for three days and nights. Hannibal, riding on the last elephant, fell seriously ill with ophthalmia. He lost the sight of one eye. But when the Carthaginians emerged from the marshes, they were past Flaminius's army and had only open, unprotected countryside ahead of them. Hannibal's army marched through Etruria, marauding, plundering, and looting as it went. When Flaminius learned that Hannibal had given him the slip, the consul immediately set off in pursuit. Flaminius was a Roman rarity, a novus homo, a new man, the first in his family to hold the consulship. He had already been consul once before, in 223, when he had scored a victory over the Gauls of the Po River Valley. Flaminius had thoroughly ravaged the lands of the Insubres, an act which earned him the tribe's undying enmity. Roman historians and commentators tended to cast Flaminius as bold and overconfident to the point of rashness. But just as with the depiction of Sempronius Longus at the Trebia, this portrayal of Flaminius served as a means to excuse catastrophe. Roman army commanders were expected to be aggressive, and they were amply rewarded for it. Flaminius and his army therefore trailed closely behind Hannibal. He and his men grew increasingly enraged at the trail of destruction wrought by the Carthaginian marauders. Roman and Italian societies were fundamentally agrarian. The destruction of some of the richest farmland in all of Italy was a hard blow to swallow and deeply insulting because it suggested that the Romans were too militarily weak to prevent the devastation. However, as the days of pursuit wore on, Flaminius also noted that Hannibal's movements were bringing him closer to Servilius and his consular army. Perhaps the Romans could enact their original plan after all. 
On June 20, 217 BCE, Hannibal's army reached Lake Trasimene in central Italy. Here, the route ran through a narrow plain between the shore and a line of hills. With his keen eye for ground, Hannibal immediately spotted an opportunity to lay a devastating trap for Flaminius. He slowed his march so that he could be sure that the Roman scouts would see his army cross the plain and camp on the other side. During the night, Hannibal deployed his army in concealed positions all along the hills overlooking the plain and the lake. The most devastating ambush in military history was now set. The next day, June 21st, 217 BCE, a thick mist rose from Lake Trasimene to enshroud the shore and the looming hills. Flaminius and his consular army, 25,000 men in all, were on the road early, eager to resume their pursuit of the Carthaginians. The Romans entered the narrow plain between the hills and the water. Hannibal let them come. His men remained concealed and quiet in their hiding places. The discipline and self-control of the Carthaginian troops were incredible and testified to their superior quality. At last, when the entire Roman army was strung out along the lakeshore below him, Hannibal gave the order to attack. The silence was abruptly broken by shrill trumpet calls and the shouted commands of the Carthaginian officers. These were answered by a chorus of war cries in a dozen tongues, then a cacophony of rushing feet and banging metal, as the Carthaginians poured out of concealment and rushed down on the hapless Romans. The Romans were caught completely unaware in marching formation. Before the legionaries and Italian allies could get into battle order, or even in many cases into their armor, the Carthaginians were among them, hacking, stabbing, killing. Yet incredibly, many Romans fought back. The Roman vanguard of 6,000 legionaries managed to fight its way through the exit out of the plain before Hannibal's troops could block it. Elsewhere, along the length of the trapped, doomed army, Small knots of men formed around an indomitable tribune, centurion, allied prefect, or even veteran legionary. The stoutest resistance of all was around the consul Flaminius. He organized his bodyguards and the Roman legionaries near him, veterans of the Triarii, into some semblance of a combat formation. For three hours, the fight raged in the narrow strip of land wedged between the hills and the water. Yet the issue was never in doubt. The Carthaginians snuffed out each knot of resistance. The Gauls concentrated on the hated Flaminius. The ferocious warriors surrounded and tore at his men's improvised shield wall, trying to cut their way through to the consul. At last, according to Livy, an Insubrian horseman who knew the consul by sight, his name was Ducarius, cried out to his countrymen, Here is the man who slew our legions and laid waste our city and our lands. I will offer him in sacrifice to the shades of my foully murdered countrymen. Digging spurs into his horse, he charged into the dense masses of the enemy and slew an armor-bearer who threw himself in the way as he galloped up, lance in rest, and then plunged his lance into the consul. Word of the consul's death sowed panic through the remnants of the Roman army. Most of us cannot even begin to imagine the stomach-churning, bowel-opening terror that now swept through the surviving Romans and Italians. They gave up all remaining thoughts of resistance and instead tried to flee. But the Carthaginians had blocked off all the exits from the plain. The only opening left was the lake. Thousands of Romans and Italians waded out. Many were dragged down by the weight of their armor and drowned. Some went so deep that just their heads remained above the water. A fearful massacre now began. 
Seeing their enemies helpless and running away, many of the Carthaginian troops now found their own fear transmuted into a joyful, murderous bloodlust. They chased after the running men, cutting them down, ignoring their screams for mercy. They splashed out into the lake to slaughter the Romans and Italians cowering in the shallows. Horsemen pushed their mounts into the deeper water to spear and slash at bobbing heads. At first, Hannibal and his officers did nothing to stop the killing. In fact, they encouraged it. They sought not just to defeat the Roman army, but to annihilate it. The massacre only came to an end when the Carthaginians became too physically exhausted and emotionally spent to continue. At last, the Carthaginians began taking prisoners. Prisoners represented the soldiers' chief reward for victory. Captives could be plundered for anything valuable they carried. Yet the most valuable booty were the bodies of the captives themselves. Prisoners could be ransomed back to their families or sold into slavery. Every ancient army was trailed by slave traders who were just waiting for the chance to bid for the defeated. An entire consular army had vanished. 10,000 Romans and allies were killed on land or in the waters of Lake Trasimene. 9,000 more were taken prisoner on the battlefield. Afterward, Hannibal assigned the job of mopping up to the Numidians under Maharbal, his most energetic and resourceful cavalry commander. Maharbal first captured the 6,000 Romans who had initially escaped the trap at the lake. Then a few days after the battle, an even greater prize fell into Maharbal's hands. The consul Servilius had sent his 4,000 cavalry rushing ahead in an attempt to join Flaminius. Maharbal ambushed the Roman horsemen, killing half and capturing the rest. Shorn of his cavalry and hence his ability to locate Hannibal's army, Servilius had no choice except to scurry back to Ariminium. For Hannibal, the victory at Lake Trasimene opened up a tantalizing possibility. His army was just four or five days' march from Rome itself, and no Roman forces stood in its way. In fact, a story that emerged a year after the Trasimene battle has Maharbal begging Hannibal to let him take the Carthaginian cavalry on a dash to Rome. Maharbal's advice had much to recommend it. If Hannibal surrounded Rome, its 90,000 or so inhabitants would soon have begun feeling the effects of starvation and disease. The only available Roman troops were Servilius's army in the northeast and the legion at Tarentum in southern Italy. These forces would have been no match for Hannibal's victorious army. With the city blockaded and its people starving, the Roman Republic might have had little choice but to capitulate and come to terms. Hannibal chose to do otherwise. He kept to his strategy of trying to undermine the Roman alliance system. Just as he did after the Battle of the Trebia, Hannibal released his Italian prisoners without ransom and after announcing to them that he had invaded Italy in order to liberate the Italians from the Roman yoke. Then from the vicinity of Lake Trasimene, he marched east to the Adriatic coast and then south to Apulia. All along the way, he and his men ravaged the countryside, taking more loot than they could carry. Hannibal also ordered the execution of all adult males who fell into Carthaginian hands. He intended this ruthless policy to spread the terror of his arms and to further undermine Italian confidence in the Romans' ability to protect them. For Rome, the catastrophe of Lake Trasimene produced a far greater shock than the defeat at the Trebia. It led first to an important change in the government of the Republic. 
the Roman Republic had evolved precisely to prevent the accumulation of too much power in the hands of one man. This fear of almighty individuals was the reason why the magistracies always existed in multiples, two consuls, four praetors, two quaestors, and so on. Power was diluted and one officer could check another. But Roman political tradition also recognized that in a moment of extreme danger, supreme power and authority could be vested for a limited time in one special magistrate, a dictator. In the immediate aftermath of Lake Trasimene, at the urging of the Senate, the Comitia Centuriata elected Quintus Fabius Maximus as dictator for a period of six months. Fabius had been consul twice, 233 and 228, and had a reputation as solid and utterly dependable. At once, he took measures to restore Roman confidence. First, he publicly blamed the dead Flaminius for the Trasimene disaster. Flaminius made a handy scapegoat. As a new man, he had no powerful family that could be defamed, nor did he have a faction of supporters who would defend him. More concretely, Fabius immediately raised two new legions and brought Servilius's surviving consular army to Rome. Then, with this new army, perhaps 30,000 strong, Fabius sallied from Rome and went after Hannibal. But if the Romans expected their new dictator to immediately seek another battle against the Carthaginians, they were sorely disappointed. Instead, the Roman army shadowed the enemy, harassing marauders and cutting off stragglers, but refusing to fight a pitched battle. These tactics have been dubbed Fabian tactics, and they earned Fabius the nickname of Cunctator, the delayer. The dictator stuck to his methods through the summer of 217, even in the face of a chorus of criticism from the Senate and people of Rome. Hannibal became aware of Fabius's unpopularity, and he tried to exploit it with a cunning ruse. He ostentatiously spared one of Fabius's estates from plunder, hinting to the Romans that he and the dictator were in collusion. Fabius was unruffled. He immediately sold the estate and used the proceeds to ransom Roman captives. Meanwhile, Fabius was waiting for an opportunity to trap the Carthaginians. He seized his chance in September, near Capua and Campania. Suddenly rushing ahead of Hannibal, Fabius blocked a key pass and then occupied the surrounding heights. By the time Hannibal found the pass blocked, it was too late for his booty-laden army to turn away. The Carthaginians were now surrounded on three sides by Roman forces and on the fourth side by the sea. Hannibal managed to escape this encirclement thanks to one of his most famous tricks. Taking 2,000 cattle from his army's livestock booty, he had lit torches attached to the unfortunate animal's horns. Hannibal then had picked men from his light-armed troops stampede the cattle up to some heights near the pass. Suspecting a Carthaginian breakout attempt, the Roman troops guarding the pass abandoned their posts in order to investigate. Hannibal's army then marched through the pass completely unscathed. After this attempt to trap Hannibal failed, Fabius reverted to his old tactics of harassment and delay. After Cannae, Fabius would be hailed as the hero who saved Rome through his dogged strategy of delay. At the time of his dictatorship, however, his methods were bitterly opposed by most Romans, who would have preferred another pitched battle against the invaders. Moreover, there is no evidence at all that Fabius himself originally conceived of his strategy as a long-term solution to Hannibal's invincibility on the battlefield. Rather, 
Fabius believed he was buying time for the Roman Republic to rebuild its strength and regain its confidence before having another go at the Carthaginian warlord. At the end of his six-month term of office, Fabius gave up the dictatorship and quietly returned to civilian life, taking his strategy with him. The Romans had wanted a battle, and now they were going to get it. In just the space of six months, Rome had suffered two catastrophes that would have shattered many other ancient civilizations, yet now the stage was set for the greatest disaster that the Republic would ever face. In the next part of our podcast, the Battle of Cannae and the Massacre of the Legions.